Words, they get golly hard when they jumble. Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle. Merkin fool, like Squirtle and Kate Boo. Cold blood is with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss. This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about scandal, individual perception, and our own alternative facts and choices, making mistakes and remaking them just for laughs. I've been thinking about how the things that draw us in and the things that repel us are often one and the same, how sometimes we have ability and opportunity but can't get the heck out of our own dang way, habit, fear, relationships, our family of origin history, and the trek to move beyond it taking responsibility for our actions and their consequences, Hollywood, fame, and the long lineage of fake news. My guest today is Edward Sorrell. He is an illustrator, caricaturist, and cartoonist whose satires and pictorial essays have appeared in Vanity Fair, Esquire, Atlantic Monthly, and the New York Times, for which he has done 46 covers. He's a recipient of the George Polk Award for Satiric Drawing and the Caricaturpreis der Duchen Anwal Shaft from the Wilhelm Busch Museum in Hanover, Germany. He lives in Harlem, and that's his bio from the jacket of his new book, Mary Astor's Purple Diary, The Great American Sex Scandal of 1936. Welcome, Mr. Sorrell, and thank you so much for joining us. Happy to be here, but you, you made a slight error. The 46 covers were for the New Yorker magazine, not for the New York Times. Okay, thank you for clarifying that. Misread and mistyped, it seems. I also made an error, in, or your bio did, and that leaves out, or fails to mention, your role of champion and keeper of the flame for Mary Astor. But we'll get into that more deeply in just a moment. I want to yes, please do. start with... Um, Talking about your new book, Mary Astor's Purple Diary, The Great American Sex Scandal of 1936, Graydon Carter, editor of Vanity Fair, writes, Edward Sorrell writes as well as he paints, which is really saying something. If a notorious affair involving a rapacious Hollywood starlet and a legendary playwright is your sort of thing, then this is the sort of thing you'll love. Let's just start with the book's cover and the illustration that's on there. Yes. What about it? Well, it's a, it's a combination, which I thought was really interesting, of a newspaper and a movie poster combined, is what I view it as. You've got it as a daily mirror, complete with weather, uh, featuring Mary, George S. Kaufman, Joan Barrymore, and Samuel Goldwyn. And you make a guest appearance, so I guess I can start with that. What's your relationship to Hollywood like? Well, as I explained in the book, it was uh, I, I was a movie kid. My both my parents worked, and I was left at home alone. And on uh, it was not uncommon for me to see four movies a week, and uh, and because the Hollywood system was in in work, uh, I I I somehow felt that the supporting players who I saw week after week were part of my family. So I've I've really had a close relationship with movies since I was a kid, uh, much less so now because uh, the movies are less magical to me now that I'm old, and, uh, but they played a big part when I was young. I wonder if the distinction is that you're older, that movies have changed when you were describing what it was like to see a movie as a child and some of the theaters that you saw these movies in. I was really awed by what a ex different experience that must have been. It was. It was, 
Uh, well, my family was uh, my extended family, not my, particularly my mother and father, but my aunts and uncles were very political. I grew up during the Depression. Most of my family were communists. The other half were Trotskyites. And uh, they were always arguing about whether Trotsky or Stalin was the great benefactor of the working class. So I, uh, the arguments uh, were uh, were very uh, troublesome to me. And I was happy to escape into my other family where where the problems were more immediate and... Uh, and, and less uh, less antagonistic. In a magical environment as well, from your descriptions, some of the movie theaters had stars sparkling on the ceilings. Oh, yes. Well, it was the age of the great movie palaces. And my, my favorite was the Lowe's Paradise in the Bronx, where you had birds flying in the ceiling and stars twinkling and clouds moving. It was uh, frequently I was watching... I was, hold on, Okay. I can't, I've got to get rid of my cell phone. Uh, uh, where were we? Oh, yes, the movie palaces. Well, uh, yes, they were, they were quite marvelous and very different from the concrete blocks that, that you see on the walls of theaters now. And you took a cue right out of the movies and the movies of Hollywood in that age and remorphed your, or morphed yourself from Eddie Schwartz into Edward Sorrell. How did that come about? Well, I, I, um, I, had, um, I had a terrible relationship with my father. I really hated my father from a very early age. And uh, I didn't like, uh, I didn't like uh, carrying his name on for the rest of my life. And when I got my first good-paying job at Esquire for $85 a week, I decided to change my name, and I changed it to Sorel because I had read Stendhal's novel, The Red and the Black, which was all about a young man who, who also hated his father, who also hated organized religion, and who also hated the, the corrupt society he saw around him. But more importantly, he was catnip to women. And um, so I took, I took the name Sorel, and uh, I have never regretted it. it. Sounded like a good, good alignment. And, and how about your alignment with Mary Astor? What drew you to Mary Astor initially? In 1965, I remarried and was lucky enough to get a railroad flat in in the east side of upper east side of new york for ninety seven dollars and seventeen cents and um, my wife said you the first thing you have to do is replace the linoleum in the kitchen uh, which i did and i replaced layer after layer after layer and when i got down to the floor there were newspapers from 1936, July 1936, copies of the Daily News and Daily Mirror, the two tabloids in New York when I was a kid. And, uh, and in headlines the size of war declared, there was, uh, there was the story of the trial going on in Los Angeles for the custody of Mary Astor's daughter. Mary Astor and her husband, uh, uh, 
Mary Astor marriage went down the tubes very fast and she began to have extramarital affairs. The problem was that she recorded them in her diary and her husband found the diary and when she asked for a divorce, he blackmailed her with the contents of this diary, which he had, and told her that, that he wanted her money, her house, and custody of her child. And uh, Mary Astor, so desperate to get out of that marriage that she gave him everything. But after, the, after she finally got the divorce, he decided to sue him for for custody of the kid and uh and that's that's when the scandal began because he began leaking contents of the diary to the press and it would not have been such a tremendous scandal because she was not a star she was simply a featured player she had once been a star in in the silent movies when john barrymore made her his leading lady but but she was only a, a featured player. But one of the men that she had her extramarital affair with was George S. Kaufman, the most the most uh, popular, the most successful playwright on Broadway, who had hit after hit after hit on Broadway, and was considered the wittiest man in New York. So um, when when the press got hold of that, then it was a real scandal. You said in the book, before I gave my heart to this stunning actress, I needed to know everything about her. Do you feel like you've learned most things in your research? I have. I, I think I have. Uh, it's, it's difficult because when I was writing it, there were very few people around anymore who actually knew her. Uh, although there were, there were one or two. Uh, I was able to contact her daughter, uh, over the internet, it's amazing what you can find over the internet, and um, and she helped a little bit. She straightened me out about the fact that her father wasn't the villain that Mary Astor presented in her memoir. Uh, the, the, and <clears throat> and she was kind of sympathetic to both of them. And do you think that she sort of after working on the book at the end, did you, do you feel like she ever had a chance with having had such a domineering fool for a father and a mother who she realizes later completely hated her? No, that's one of the reasons, I guess, that I wanted to do this book for 50 years. And remember, I, I discovered those newspapers over 50 years ago. And uh, and had wanted to do it for the last fifty years, uh, but what 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 I felt about her was a tremendous sympathy. She had she really was abused by her parents in, in the most uh, in the most terrible brainwashing way you can imagine. They never never let her play with other children because they didn't. Uh, he was he was. Uh, he had come to America as a young man for no other purpose than to make money, and and he uh, had he was a chauvinist. He was uh, believed that everything German was superior to anything American, and he didn't want her to have anything to do with with the way Americans did things. And most importantly, he didn't want her to see the way 
American parents brought up their children. He brought her up in a in a dictatorial way, and she had to do what he did. And uh, she learned early on not to not to in any way express her her feelings. Uh, and um, yes, she she kind. It was really impossible for her to have a happy, happy adult, uh, adult life, because of the damage that had done to her as a child. So I was very sympathetic to her, and she had written a memoir in 1959, and proved to be a, a remarkably good writer. She was witty, self-denigrating, and and very observant. So she in spite of the incredible mess that she made of her life, she was an extremely intelligent woman, not well-educated, but extremely intelligent. And do you feel like you sorted that out, the mess she made? You say in the book she met a lot of men, and though I hate to say it, made a lot of bad decisions, and made a lot of bad decisions with her career as well. Do you have a sense now, after having been sort of intimately connected with her story, as to why she made these choices and and kept making them. Well, I think I think largely she was always looking for love, and she was not uh, her. Um, you know, she, her as you say, her mother did not like her. Uh, whether she was jealous of her beauty, and mother was an ordinary-looking woman, and Mary Astor was exquisitely beautiful, just uh, and um, and her father regarded her as a meal ticket. He only was interested in her as a way of making money, and uh, the you know uh, when she was uh, when she was seventeen. Uh, Barrymore made her his leading lady in Bo Brummel, and there, and how he, why he chose her is rather interesting in itself. Uh, he was traveling, he was traveling to, to Hollywood on the 20th century in 1924, and uh, he had just finished his run as Hamlet on Broadway and acclaimed by everyone as the greatest Hamlet America had ever produced. He was exceptionally beautiful, even at 41, which is what he was at that time. And, um, and he picks up a, a movie magazine on the train, and there is a, a picture of Mary Astor taken when she was about 16, and the headline underneath it was on the verge of womanhood. And Barrymore, who had made a habit of deflowering virgins, uh, was uh, entranced by the photograph and, I suspect, by the headline. And when he got there, he told Warner Brothers, who was producing Bo Brummel, that he wanted her for his leading lady, in spite of the fact that she was working for famous players, which became Paramount Pictures. And, of course, uh, in spite of the, his, her mother and father keeping a sharp eye on her uh, to protect their meal ticket, uh, uh, he had his way with her, and a 
And when she wrote her her memoir in 1959, she still insisted that they would have married. He he secretly he told her that they would eventually marry, even though she was 17 and he was 41. Uh, and she believed him. She was madly in love with him. But uh, when he proposed to her father that she become his leading lady in Shakespearean drama, the father wouldn't allow it. And Mary, who was still only about 18 at the time, uh, didn't have enough didn't have enough confidence, didn't have enough will, didn't have, didn't realize she was a, she was an adult and could not be pushed around by her father anymore. She acquiesced to him. She had, she had completely been brainwashed by this, by her father into obeying him. And when Barrymore saw that he, that she was not yet an adult, really, he he left her and um and it was downhill as far as her love affairs after that uh until she met Kaufman uh in 1933 or 4 there was seemed when i was reading through the book to be such a disparity between the way that certain people like Barrymore and Kaufman and um some famous actresses as well, who were actually trying to be encouraging of her and respectful of her and to kind of support her in breaking away from her father and and being more confident and daring. And then the men that she chose to marry, who were the opposite in in pretty much every way. Well, uh, that's true. And she, she was the pursuer of many of her husbands which was even weirder. But uh, both Kaufman was married, and even though he and his wife had an open marriage, they were utterly devoted to each other, and he had no intention of leaving her. So she accepted him on his own terms, uh, and Barrymore uh, just left her. Those were the two great loves of her life, but the others were uh, I think she was so susceptible uh, one one night in the hay with a guy that was enough to convince her that she was in love with him and she married uh, she married four times uh, the first the first husband uh, although she doesn't say so in her memoir was was uh, obviously gay because he uh, he had no interest in sex with her and uh and he but he was a very nice man and she was completely devoted to him but he was uh, killed in an airplane crash he was a director and he was he was directing an a world war 1 epic in the air when one plane collided with the other and he died and uh she was uh completely lost after that because her father told her what to do, and then her husband told her what to do, and suddenly she was a widow who didn't want to go back to her father under any conditions, and um, and she was lost. She needed, you know, she she had never had a chance to to make decisions. 
And it was rather pathetic so that uh, when she develops a rash uh, after having sort of a nervous breakdown after her first husband died, she goes to a doctor and, uh, and essentially seduces him and they marry. And he seems extremely reluctant to get married. I, so, but she, um, she makes herself useful by giving him money to start the most opulent medical practice in, in Los Angeles. So, um, she, um, as I said, as, as you said, uh, it was her childhood that made it inevitable that her life would be a mess. You said in your book, you said you were cursed with the world's foremost fixation. And at one part during the book, you play out an imaginary conversation with her ghost to, to get asking about details about her affair with, with Kaufman. And I was thinking about, did you think about when you were writing that or afterwards, if you had had that conversation with her, if the meeting had been real, the things you might have, have wanted to say to her or even ask her about other than that, her relationship with Kaufman? What do you mean? What, what what questions do you have in mind? Well, I'm just thinking after after having spent so much time studying her life, and uh, having having some parallels with with having a father that that you really did not like, and and that you saw what her, having that father in in her life did to her whole life, and then and during the book it would sort of pop up. I I felt like your frustration. Things would be in italics. You know that she was making such bad choices, and she was not. Being being brave or choosing the right thing, and so I just wondered if if in your head or or you had thought about things that you would have liked to have told her. Well, uh, I, I wouldn't have wanted to tell her anything, but uh, except to ask her questions. But uh, you know, her once she started messing up with with her husbands and her men, and uh, she be. She she became an alcoholic. She was uh, uh, she started drinking rather early, and it was undoubtedly Barrymore who probably gave her her first drink. And uh, and once you're dealing with an addict, you're, it's it's you don't ask um, rational questions because you the the person is is an addict. It's it's you don't. Um, I don't know how how you converse with someone who's who's on on a different planet. Uh, so I asked I, the questions I asked in the book were probably the the, the questions I would have had the courage to ask had had I really been talking to her ghost. I, I don't. First of all, I uh, as you know in in the book, I assume. Uh, I, I have this fantasy, which uh, where I <clears throat> arranged. She she had um, she became a Catholic. She was uh, probably a Lutheran, I guess, uh, and uh, but she wanted desperately to become a Catholic. Uh, she she felt I, I don't. Well, I guess that's what I really would have asked her. Now that you mention it, I guess I would have wanted to know. What she expected to get from being accepted into the church, uh, as I explain in the book, I, I am a proselytizing atheist, and in spite of that, 
uh, was uh, fell in love with this uh, with with Mary. But I but I would well I'm curious about belief in general. But I would particularly be interested in knowing what it what she expected to gain. I mean, surely it wasn't it wasn't simply peace after death. It wasn't the it wasn't being in heaven. I don't know. Uh, you know, I would have liked to have known that. I, I, as a matter of fact, in in the conversation that I have with her that I invented, uh, you'll remember. Uh, she says, um, she says to me uh, at the very end. She says, uh, I don't, I don't know what would have happened if Kaufman and I if Kaufman had left his wife and, and we had married, uh, but we never would have married because I wanted, because I was, I was a believer uh, as Kaufman wasn't, and he never would have married me and neither would you, Ed, she says in this interview. Uh, and of course she's right. I mean, her, her desperate belief to be taken into the Catholic church was, um, was a strong part of her, and um, and, and, and she was. Uh, she was persistent and sort of took extreme measures to make that happen. More so, really, now that you're talking about it, than she did in many other ways in her in her life, other than her career, where she seemed pretty steadfast in in keeping it alive and keeping her career alive. Yeah. Well. The, the the reason that she was uh, just to touch on this for a moment, uh, the reason that that she was a featured player was not because she wasn't offered contracts. Both RKO and Paramount offered her uh, con- long term contracts for starring roles, but she turned them down because she wanted a long career. And I attribute this to to her. Her upbringing with her father, where everything was about money, and so it's true that if you have a, uh, if you become a star, your life, your life of stardom probably won't last more than five years, maybe eight at the most. Uh, as a, but as a supporting player, you can go on for years. And she, she was acting in movies from 1924 until until the 50s. And uh, and she was always making good money, so so she was this her father's uh, obsession with money being the clue to everything uh, wo- uh, rubbed off on her. Uh, uh, the, the when she wrote her memoir, she dedicated to her her father and mother in spite of the fact that they were the most abusive parents you could imagine. And the reason for that was because she was at that point in the Catholic Church and looking for, um, uh, trying to to forgive, 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 um, which is uh, quite foreign to me. I, I can stay angry for a lifetime. Uh, I, uh, but... Um, 
anyway, that's uh, we're getting off on a tangent here. Well, but I, but I think it's an important one because that thread runs through her life. You know, you keep thinking, really, she's still not cutting the cord with her parents? Really? Now still not cutting her cord with her parents? And then seems pretty surprised when she, her mother has died and left a diary and says pretty flat out that she's always hated her daughter, Mary. Yes. Yes, that that came as a shock to her. Uh, yes, and and the uh, the mother and presumably the father felt that they were the exploited, that they were treated badly. As you know, the the uh, uh, the father handled her finance, allow finally allowed her after she ran away from home, finally allowed her a a. a put $500 in her bank after he had accumulated hundreds of thousands. Uh, and, uh, and when she finally uh, got married and handled her own finances, she was still supporting him, and he was still demanding that, that, he, that she give him more and more money. And, and when, when she refused, he, he actually sued her for non-support, even though he had he had essentially embezzled from her her whole whole life uh so uh, i mean it, it was just it was just a terrible a terrible parents that I, 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 I guess that's why i felt such empathy for her uh-huh. All right, well, we're going to take a short break. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking. I'm speaking with author and illustrator Edward Sorrell about his new book, Mary Astor's Purple Diary, The Great American Sex Scandal of 1936. And we'll be back in just a moment. We'll talk a little bit about the process of writing the book. All right, we're back. And Mr. Sorrell, I want to talk a little bit about the process of writing the book and illustrating it. When you you say in the book that you joke about um, that you were getting you were getting old, and so some of the drawings may look driven, and that you had felt sort of a pressure to get this done. When you first were really sitting down to approach the book after you've done all the research, what came first, the, the story or the illustrations? Oh, the writing comes first, of course. Uh, uh, when I was writing it, I kept uh, changing the ribbon to red to say what I, the places where I intended to illustrate what I was writing, I, I put into in red red uh, ribbon. Although there's no ribbon, of course, in the, in the computer, but uh, I was wondering about that. I was going to ask. No, Did you no. do it on the typewriter? No, no. I, I, I am a luddite, but I do use the word processor. Um, uh, yeah. So um, the the writing the writing came first, and uh, the anybody listening who and everybody I think plans to write a book someday. So this might be of interest. Uh, my first, the first version of the book I did got turned down, and um, uh, because it, I was trying to do a straight biography, and um, and it was kind of stilted, not amusing, not, uh, and I didn't have enough. I didn't have enough intimate 
detail for it to exist as a serious biography. And it got turned down. And as I was walking out of the publisher with my tail between my legs, uh, one of the assistant editors said to me, you know, it might work if you put yourself in the story. Well, I went home and I put myself in the story. It started off with how I found found out about the scandal and and did it in a very colloquial manner and um, decided I was going to make it a not only a biography of Mary Astor, but to a lesser extent, my biography. So um, when I started writing it in a in my colloquial manner, it was it became amusing, and uh, so I advise uh, all uh, all writers to somehow find their inner voice. So now that you brought that up, let's talk a little bit about Rumpelmeyer's and that hot chocolate um, that you had when you met your soon-to-be second wife, because it definitely seemed like any parallels with Mary Astor ended there, that that you made very conscious and self-aware and different choices and broke away from anything that, that in your earlier life had been sort of inhibiting your success and your happiness. Well, what what inhibited my I, I I had unlike Mary, I had a very good mother. Uh, I think all you need is one good parent. Uh, Mary had two terrible parents. My mother encouraged my art. She believed in me, and uh, I couldn't do anything wrong, as far as my mother was concerned, and that gave me a certain confidence, in spite of the fact that I seemed to be failing at everything I did. I failed, wasn't a good student. The the kind of art that I wanted to do was frowned upon. I went to, I went to art school at a time when abstract expressionism was the way to go. Everybody, they only wanted to teach me abstract art, a, a, which never interested me. I, I liked, drawing and I, I particularly like comic drawing and uh, so the schools were the enemy and and it took quite a while for me to uh, I took a great chance in freelancing and that took took a while to I t- it took a while for me to become a good artist it takes a while to become unless you're really really a genius it, it takes a while before you become a good anything and uh, it took me a long time before I found a way of working that I was able to express myself. Did you always have... Oh, com- oh, 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 I'm sorry. I forgot about all about Rumpelmeyer. Rumpelmeyer's, they do have good hot chocolate. Did you have oh, hot chocolate? Yes. <laughs> well, I, I, I was having a nervous breakdown after I left my first wife. And I went to, I went to, I don't know if he was a psychiatrist or just a psychologist, therapist, whatever, but he, he was, um, he was another left winger and he, uh, and he and I had a terrific bond. As as I say in the book, uh, when I ran out of money, because uh, when I left my first, first wife, 
I was completely broke. I had no place to work. And, uh, and he, uh, and he insisted that I come to Quaker meeting with him. Now that, that came as a shock because I assumed he was a non-believer as I was. And, uh, but he said that, uh, that when the, uh, he explained that he had been a member of the communist party and that when the party was disbanding, uh, as it was forced to do in the 50s, uh, uh, he, he decided that he would continue to work for the causes he believed in and went to um, and, and joined the Quakers, who were always working for peace and uh, were always concerned with the poor, and uh, as, as were the communists. Uh, and um, so... So he he found he found a home with the Quakers and became a very good Quaker and a, and a rather disillusioned communist. And uh, and when I went there, I didn't know what to expect, but I was incredibly moved by the silence. Uh, I, uh, as you know, the Quakers first of all have no minister. They have a clerk, which in the case of the Morningside meeting that I attended, uh, served for uh, served for a few uh, for six months, and then another clerk was hired to 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 run the meeting. Uh, so there was no, uh, I guess as a, as a, I like the idea of an, of there not being any middleman to the uh, to the spirits. Um, and maybe and, that makes uh, sense why, too. Why the communist, the attraction to to prior communists, because it had more of the socialist element of, of the way it was, yes, was run. Uh, yes, it did, and and they, they were they were on the same page as to what what the good society is, and uh, so um, so I, I found. I found Quakerism enormously uh, simpatico, and and one one meeting on Sunday, and I and I I, I had two children from my first marriage, so I started taking my children to Quaker meeting, and uh, and it was uh, it was also a way for me to to hold on to my children. Uh, at least on the weekends. Uh, in, in any case, um, I, I, I forget where I was going with this, but I, I was. Uh, I think we were going to, it, from from the meeting at the Quaker um, service to Rumpelmeyer's, a hot chocolate oh, yes. and, a, and a marriage oh, proposal. Yes. Oh, thank you, thank you. Well, there was one weekend when. Um, when everyone were most of the members were away on a retreat and it was the custom on the first Sunday of every month to, uh, to have everyone stand and say what their, what kind of work they did, their name and what kind of work and stuff of that nature. And, um, and I was, I had just had a book published, 
So I was able to say that I was uh, both a writer and an illustrator. And after the after the announcements were made and coffee was served, the most beautiful girl I had ever seen served me a cup of coffee. And uh, and uh, turned out that she was from Kansas City and that she was working on the Columbia Encyclopedia. And she invited me to breakfast. And I counter-proposed that we go to Rumpelmeyer's for, for coffee or the best hot chocolate in the world. Uh, and... Uh, I had just been I had just taken the children to a flea market the day before and was wearing a jacket that I bought for 50 cents. The, the children loved going to flea markets. And uh so we went to we went we took a taxi to Rumpelmeyer's. I had enough money for that. And uh because I was dressed so shabbily and she was dressed so unfashionably, they put us in a corner. And which was fine because we got to talk, and um, and I I fell in love with her that first day, uh, and of course I was terribly worried because we were meeting after all in a in under religious circumstances, and I I was I I, I couldn't afford to involve myself with a woman who believed that there was a God who was going to take care of everything. But so I forget what I asked her to, to find out what her belief system was. But I, and she reassured me that, you know, that when she went away to college, she realized that she became aware that there was nobody up there to, take care of her, and uh, in spite of the fact that she had gone to uh, Presbyterian uh, church every Sunday, she was uh, not a believer, and so we we fell in love, we got married, and I lived happily ever after. And so, in hindsight, do you think, if you look back and you think, if she had said she was a believer, would that have been it? You'd that would have been out? a deal breaker. It yes, so just as the just as there are believers who would not marry a persons who did not believe, I think it works the other way as well. It's not uh, it's not simply uh, a, an intolerance of another person's opinion. It goes much deeper than that somehow. Too big of a uh, chasm. Good for me. Yeah, it's a, it's a real chasm. I, I, I mean, it's not something you just want to accept. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I'm sure there are marriages where one believes and the other doesn't. But it wasn't a marriage that I was looking forward to. So let's talk a little bit about what happened towards the end of what you describe as the screwball tragedy, and that's Mary Astor's life, not yours, and the trial. In in looking back on that, in your mind, was that something that was inevitable or was that avoidable, do you think? Oh, the trial was, was certainly avoidable. I mean, the, he, you know, he was a her husband was a cuckolded man. He was a cuckolded husband, and it's he was furious and he wanted revenge and he was going to, he was out to destroy her uh and uh i 
I guess I guess I can understand it, but it was it was not necessary. I mean, uh, even even though she won custody of the child, it was this it was the usual arrangement of you have the child during the school year, and you may have the child during the summer vacation, and you will share this expense and that expense. I mean, he ended up with an arrangement that could have been achieved, that that should have been achieved at the divorce. Uh, and it was the kind of divorce arrangement that I had with my first wife, which worked out extremely well. My Both the children from my first marriage loved the woman I married, and these things can be worked out sensibly. Um, so, well, it's, yeah, I think the trial could have been avoided, sure. It's interesting throughout the book, and I think because you did interweave your story, to kind of go back and forth between the current times and the, the, the what was happening in 1934 and in that era. Even when you say about your date at Rumpelmeyer's, you know, today if you go in with thrift shop attire, you'll probably get put right in the front seats. That that, you know, that's very stylish. Um, but then, you know, that was, you were not wearing the right thing. And, and the, so many of the things that happened in Mary Astor's life were fostered by the time that she was living in and also in her career as far as the studio system. It seemed like because of the system, it affected her choices in both good and, and bad ways. The studio system? Well, I, I don't see what the studio system had to do with it other than the fact that they were and they were an all-powerful force. They they actually, as I try to go into in the book, they, they controlled the police departments there. Scandals, uh, you know, uh, everyone knows that uh, Clark Gable killed, uh, killed a, uh, a man uh, and, uh, the, uh, in his car. He just, uh, and, and MGM had somebody take the rap for him. I mean, they were able to do all kinds of incredibly uh, criminal things, and they could certainly, uh, they certainly had power over their actors. Well, I guess that's what uh, I'm thinking about, that the choices she made, whether to be a star or whether to just be a constant within the system, and as to which studio she happened to be under contract for, and then in her dying days ends up living in a, a studio-supported um, home. Yeah, see, uh, well, it was a it, it it was it was a far cry from being a pauper's uh, retirement home. It was a it was a very pleasant place where you had your own cottage, and it's true that it 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 didn't depend on your ability. It did depend on your ability to pay, and if you couldn't afford, uh, if you were broke, they would take you anyway. Uh, but it was. Um, she was there largely because by the time that she entered this uh, Hollywood, uh, well, uh, she, um, I, I think that's, I'm call waiting. Uh, I, I think the problem was that, uh, oh, Jesus. Uh, the, the, the problem was, the, oh, I forget what the problem was. This phone is driving me crazy. <laughs> okay. Uh, 
Well, we let's go back to where the studios, you talk about the studios do have a lot of power. And I guess that's one way that's maybe not quite the same as it used to be, although maybe the, the media and the stealth tactics and the dirty politics are still there. But you talk about in the book about the 1934 governor's race between Sinclair and, and Miriam and the, the power that the studios and, and Randolph Hearst sort of wield in that election. Enormous, enormous power. Uh, Upton Sinclair was a socialist, and he had won the Democratic primary to run for governor. And uh, and Hollywood was terrified. The studios were terrified of having a socialist because he was going to tax them and take care of the poor. Uh, and he he was going to, and they were terrified of as as. Businesses always are are terrified of taxes, and so MGM had uh, Louis B. Mayer had had Thalberg, who was in charge of production, create a fake newsreel in which it, they depicted all the terrible things that would happen if Upton Sinclair became governor. The the mobs that would suddenly immigrate to California and take away or everything, uh, and this this fake newsreel. Uh, it was interesting in in this age of fake news that there was fake news back in the 30s as well. This this news so-called newsreel played played in all the theaters, the ones that Hearst owned and the ones that MGM owned and uh and the and Sinclair Lewis who had a considerable margin when the election started ended uh, lost the election and as a result of that the governor who the Republican governor who did win owed a lot of um, favors to the studios and the studios were uh, this was something I could not prove in the book, but it's something that I suspect the studios had put pressure on the governor to make sure that the judge that he assigned to the case uh, n- never let the contents of the diary out because they were afraid that there would be such a um, a revulsion against Hollywood that people would stop going to the movies if this if the scandalous diary were ever came came out in public so in point of fact the judge did see to it that the that the contents of the diary were not were not exposed and uh, and Mary won the case and uh, that was it did your sleuthing reveal you mention it at towards the end of the book that the diary was was at one point taken out and and burned to ashes was destroyed do you know who ordered that and how do you feel about it was that a happy moment or a sad moment to know the diary no longer existed well i think i think i don't see what what benefit would have come of of the contents i mean it would have been a replay I mean, Mary was a middle-aged woman by then. It was burnt. Uh, uh, what, what was to be gained by by a woman's foolishness in committing her love life to to a diary? I, I think 
burning it was the right thing to do. The The problem was that in 1936, when the trial was going on, a reporter from the Daily News had bribed one of the people in the in the law office where the diary was being held into letting her photograph it. And that's, that is why we know what actually took, what was actually in the, in the diary during the period that she was having her affair with Kaufman. Uh, she was extremely uh, blunt and <laughs> used language that ha- the diary c- couldn't, they couldn't put, the exact words in the diary into the newspapers because it was too, it was too vulgar and too salacious. So they they had to use the euphemisms for it. So um, uh, it was um, there was n- there was no reason not to burn the diary. It wasn't as though it wasn't something political where at least the guilty people would be punished. Uh, it was uh, it was a love thing where there, there was no, nothing to be gained by it. And so do you feel satisfied with your role as Mary Astor's champion and keeper of the flame? Well, I'm not the only one. I don't know if you're aware of it, but there's another book that came out at exactly the same time. Uh, cognitive it's Resonance. Also... I hate that sometimes. What's that? Cognitive Resonance. You know, how things just seem to happen at the same time in the universe. Oh, yes, yes. So that's what it's called. (laughs) Cognitive resonance. resonance. Somehow our brains are resonating on the same track Uh energetically. Oh, yeah. Well, anyway, this this other fellow, and he's very nice. He, 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 you know, on, on Amazon where you, where people are allowed to express their opinions, he he expressed his opinions of my book and was extremely flattering, and I I feel like a cad for not reciprocating, <laughs> but <laughs> but I haven't so far. Um, in any case, uh, yes, there's there's another book out on it, and and also what I found out was that I was not the only nutcase uh, who was crazy about Mary Astor. A lot of uh, movie people were, were crazy about her. I, Robert Gottlieb, who's the uh, the editor at Knopf, uh, who has just written his own memoir, he was crazy about Mary Astor too. And I find out many uh, many of the movie critics were, were great fans of her. She she was. I mean, that what was so sad about it is that she was only in two good movies in her whole life. The rest were 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 various shades of awfulness. Uh, she was in Dodsworth, which in which she would never. The, she became irresistible to the public in Dodsworth. Dodsworth was filmed while the trial was going on, and and Sam Goldwyn, who was the producer of the movie was contemplating taking her out of the movie because of the morals clause in the contract because he was afraid he was afraid the public would boycott it but he finally decided that that she uh, that she was really a good person and fighting for her her daughter and he kept her in the movie and the movie saved her career because it was a very sympathetic role and she played it beautifully and after that after the trial she really got better roles 
and, and finally ending up getting an Academy Award for The Great Lie, in which he had a supporting role, and for getting the lead in The Maltese Falcon, for which she is remembered by. So you've got a celebration of your life's work coming up, a retrospective at the Boston University Howard Gottlieb Center, and opening March 19th. Will illustrations from Mary Astor's Purple Diary be displayed? There will be. There will be uh, four pictures from the book will be displayed along along with the book. Uh, I I couldn't bear to part with some of them, so I have I have the bulk of the illustrations in my drawer, and uh, I. Uh, uh, I'll be able to part with them sooner or later, but right now they, I want them close at hand. And do you have a favorite? Of the illustrations? Of the illustrations. Was there one that was when you were creating it or after you'd created it that you felt like, all right, this is the quintessential piece? Yes, it's the end papers. I, I, was, <laughs> I was able to fulfill a, a fantasy of, of seeing Mary Astor stretched out on the chaise lounge, completely nude, reviewing her life. And in the background, we see all the studios that she worked for, and we see the, the plane in which her first husband died flaming down to earth. Uh, I, I like the end papers in the book a lot. And I like the jacket, too. It was, uh, I like the idea of Mary and Kaufman looking out on us as though we were reporters with flashbulb cameras and they are caught not in the headlights of a car but in the flashlights of a camera. I liked the end pages as well. I, I thought of Manet's Olympia or Venus of Urbino and there she <laughs> sat with the bottle of booze right there on the side of the floor. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I'm, uh, I'm glad you like it. I... I, I I thought it was funny. I, my, you know, the the truth, the crazy part is, is that the book I've written is is amusing, but her life is was really tragic, and I realized after I had done the book that of course, since I can't do serious pictures, when I attempt to do serious pictures, they look like I'm parodying serious art. Uh, I'm uh, everything, every drawing I do was inevitable that to match my pictures, I would write a book in a tone that was itself satiric. Uh, I, I suppose uh, it was a case of uh, the pictures determining what the text would be like. Oh, I thought I, I, my experience of it was very authentic, and I think it represented her life very well because although maybe there was tragedy there was also you know she she was an actress and a good actress and won awards and had i think very um high highlights and then some low low lights yeah it's like most of our lives uh and um there are highs and lows like most of our lives but maybe a little exaggerated so if if some of your pictures were exaggerated that was a perfect parallel as well well, thank you. Thank you. Well, Mr. Swell, thank you so much for joining us on That Got Me Thinking. It was a, a pleasure. I haven't had so much fun talking to anyone in a long time. You're terrific. Oh, thank you so much. All right, well, thank you. I enjoyed your book thoroughly, and I enjoyed the illustrations. 
I'm sorry I stutter a lot, but... No, it's uh, fabulous. It was a great interview. (laughs) Thank you.